Chuck and Julie, bringing you the truth straight up. I'm Julie Hagan. I'm working at- an Emmy-winning former investigative reporter, a highly successful trial attorney, and publisher of a major Denver area newspaper. They've been partners as talk show hosts and in marriage as parents for over 10 years, providing thought-provoking information, opinion, and entertainment live, local, and interactive. Everyone's voice is always welcome on the Chuck and Julie Show. Hey, welcome to the Chuck and Julie Show. Um, Chuck and Julie are out watching their kid play golf, which is what I would love to be doing is actually playing golf as well. So to celebrate them going out and playing golf, I bought a new golf bag over the weekend, which should be delivered here any minute to the house. So I'm excited about that. But I just want to thank Chuck and Julie for giving me the opportunity to step in and help out with the podcast. I love doing it. I have a lot of fun. It's a complete change of pace for me. So if you want to join in, and I'm going to go through kind of what we're going to do today. And good news is John St. Augustine, my partner in crime, guess I can't say that, but my partner, he is going to be able to make it. One of the things I can definitely tell you, if you ever work in the judicial system, which I consider that I still work in the judicial system because I'm a defense expert or an, an expert in cellular technology. I don't care who hires me, if whether it's defense or the prosecution. I've worked for both. Um, a lot of these hearings and stuff get canceled. So he was all scheduled to have to go to a hearing today. He told me, I believe it was yesterday, that, hey, that got canceled or I think it's going to get canceled, so I think we can talk. So we're going to talk, John and I, we're going to talk about the Black Forest Fire. And that might bring up some interesting stuff about how that fire started. We're not going to name any names. I can't remember the names anyway, so don't look to me to to mention any names. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Tom Clements, if we have a little time. This is a homicide that just seems like it won't go away for me or, or it just won't go away. We'll talk briefly about that if we have some time. Um, so, hey, if you want to jump in, if you're on video or whatever, you can jump in. I'm more than happy to talk about anything, um, even the sub imploding. I'll talk about that. Who cares? But if you want to call in, you can call at 1-800-627-6008. If you're on Zoom, just pop in. I do have the chat thing up. So if you ask any questions or want to say anything, feel free to do that as well. So the first thing I want to talk about is something that was brought to my attention about a week ago. I still teach. In fact, I'm teaching the the spring or summer semester. My first class is actually tonight. After this, I'm going to drive down to the college and teach this night for four hours. And I'll do that pretty much over the summer to new recruits that want to become cops. And of course, the first thing I'll tell them when I get in there tonight is, what on earth are you thinking? you know, wanting to get into law enforcement at this point. But I appreciate that there are young people that want to get into law enforcement and have a good heart and want to do that. But Polis just signed something. This is a new thing about search warrants. And it's probably been advertised as making no-knock raids illegal, which is not true, has nothing to do with it. Well, not nothing to do with it. I'll explain. So this thing passed and, and he signed it, Senate Bill 23 254, which he signed on June 6th. So it's kind of current events. And I was contacted from some old buddies of mine who said, man, this is really going to change the how we do search warrants. And I started looking at the bill and I have it here off on my right. So if you see me looking to the right, I'm reading directly from the verbiage of the search warrant or of the bill concerning search warrants. 
And it basically says that, look, you can't do a no-knock raid unless there's a credible threat to life of any person, including the executing officers. Well, no kidding. That's every search warrant, bonehead. So, you know, they think they're really changing everything. It, it says a court may order or grant or only grant a no-knock search warrant under circum, certain circumstances. And, and one of them is, is that there's credible threat when you're executing the warrant. Okay. I was a detective for 10 years. Ugh, I couldn't even tell you how many warrants that I executed or worked on for others that were executed in the hundreds. So there was hundreds of times that, that I went to a house, suited up, and, and they give us requirements of things that you have to do when you execute a warrant now. And the only one that really makes a difference, which I think is just stupid on their part, is you have to execute search warrants between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. unless the, George, the judge authorizes at a, at a different time. Normally, what we would do is we'd go to a judge, they'd sign the search warrant, and we had 14 days to execute it. And if we wanted to do it at 3 a.m., for goodness sakes, we'd, you know, we could do it at 3 a.m. Now, do you really think cops are going to get up in the middle of the night and say, hey, let's go do this at 3 a.m.? That's not how it works. Cops are pretty much nine to five as well, especially detectives. Now, we're not going to execute any search warrants between 11 and 1 because that's when we go hit the buffets you know, for lunch and stuff. So that's when all the bad guys are safe is during that lunch break when we're all, all out having food. But this says we can only do it from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Who cares? Um, you have to be in uniform or wearing visible law enforcement badges. Or We constantly wanted to have stuff on that said sheriff or police. Or Do you think we really want to go into a house where there's any confusion that we're law enforcement? No, that's how you get shot. So a lot of this stuff is crazy. You got to have a, a um, body-worn camera on. There's really no changes to this whatsoever. But understand, when law enforcement, all these times that we executed warrants, we did want it to be a surprise. You definitely do not want to like call them ahead of time and say, hey, just let you know, we issued a warrant. We'll be by around nine o'clock. So they can be ready for us. One, they're going to destroy the evidence. And two, if they have an issue with law enforcement, they're going to be prepared to kill us as we're coming through the door, which did happen in a warrant a few years before I went into law enforcement down here in El Paso County. We had Hugh Martin, who was part of a team, and they were executing a warrant. And when they kicked in the door, the guy was waiting for them with an assault rifle and just unloaded on the cops as they came in and killed Hugh Martin. So... To say that we can't do a no-knock raid unless there's a credible threat, by God, there's a credible threat every time you go through a door. And here's the problem with doors. You don't know what's on the other side of the doors. So when you go through them, who's at risk here? Okay, we might wake up some people that were asleep or whatever. But if they know we're coming or if this is a bad place, every time we go through that door, do we really want them to know that we're coming? Now, during my 10-year career, I was never involved in a knock raid, mainly because I wasn't part of SWAT, and only SWAT in our agency could do no-knock raids. I wasn't interested in no-knock raids, had no desire to go there. I mean, SWAT, the guys used to joke with me whenever they saw me, hey, Mark, we really want you to join SWAT. And I'm like, why would you want me to join SWAT? Am I one of those macho guys? That's, no, you're just so big, two or three of us could hide behind you, and we want you to go in first. So I kind of stayed out of SWAT, didn't think that they were really going to be my friends in these, in these events. But these are high risk. 
all execution of search warrants are high risk. When you go through a door and you have no idea what's on the other side of that door, that's a problem. That's not a good thing. It's like I used to tell people who should be more nervous during a traffic stop. You're being pulled over by law enforcement with all these lights going on. If you're getting pulled over and you see the vehicle behind you with all these lights on, do you really need to be concerned? The answer is no. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. If you're a cop executing a traffic stop and you have no idea who's in that vehicle, is that a problem when you walk up out in the open to a vehicle, an unknown person in an unknown vehicle? So who should be more scared in a traffic stop? It's the cop who should be more scared because normally when things go bad, it's the cop that gets hurt. I have never in my career ever seen someone who fully complied with law enforcement ever get hurt. Now, I know there's some rare events of where that happens, but I've never seen it and I've not been involved in any kind of traffic stop that I thought was, you know, not handled appropriately by law enforcement. So, but I just wanted to address that, you know, Paul is signing this bill. You know, some people are trying to make a big deal that this outlaws no-knock raids. It doesn't. You know, the biggest impact is, is that cops or detectives can't execute warrants except between seven and seven. I got news for you. The cops are going to love that. You know, they don't like getting up at four o'clock in the morning to execute a warrant at 6 a.m. or whatever. They just soon wait a little bit. Meth heads don't get up till noon anyway. So it doesn't really matter. So not a big deal, but I just want to talk about that briefly. I do want to say I wish I was an expert in foreign policy or foreign affairs. Love to talk about the Russia thing, but I don't know anything about it. My only prediction is that either Putin or this um, Prigozhin, the guy who led up the Wagner thing, who kind of led this little revolt, one of them's dead within six months. I, I don't buy this. If there's If there's that kind of conflict going on, one of them is going to go away. That's it for foreign policy for me. Um, but I do want to talk about this Department of Justice. This is something that I talked um, to Julie about is, you know, them coming out with this report against um, Minneapolis. And this is an 89 page report. They started the investigation. I'm going to look down here at my notes. I, I thought this was kind of interesting. I, I really wanted to, to review this. They started the investigation in April 21st of 2021. It's 89 pages long. And they released the results just a little while ago on June 16th of this year. So they spent over two years doing this investigation. The one thing I've, I've definitely learned about any federal agency that I worked with when I was in law enforcement, I worked with FBI, DEA. I mean, you just name all of them, ATF, Secret Service. I worked with all of them. They don't do anything quick. They don't do an investigation in a timely fashion. That will never happen. We've seen this in all of these other investigations. It's just not the way that they work. These guys sit around and have two or three cups of coffee, read their email, then go to lunch. And then after lunch, they might spend five, 10 minutes on looking at something. And then they wait and see if any local agencies give them you know, information they need for their case. They don't do a lot. It's very boring to work for a federal agency. So two years, wrote an 89-page report. Guarantee there's no such thing as a 12-page report from the feds. It's going to be huge. And it goes through. And if you actually read it, I thought for sure when I went through this, that they were going to be making some kind of recommendation of taking over the force or doing something um, that they needed government oversight 
of their agency or something to that effect. And it's not there. So I was wrong on that one. But I read through and it's kind of like stating the obvious that it has been stated and overstated in all these Department of Justice type reports or any type time the feds step in and say, I mean, they basically say that Minneapolis Police Department is racist, is that, you know, that they have a policy of um, racial discrimination, blah, 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 blah. They're pretty much could say the same thing about every agency if you came in, because what they do is they look at statistics and they look at things like that, and then they draw conclusions. And some of the things they said that I thought were interesting is where did they get their information? And here's a quote from the report. We heard from over 2,000 community members and local organizers. What the hell is a local organizer? What is that job? How much does it pay? And who hires you? But they talk to these people, including many family members of people killed by the Minneapolis Police Department officers. Okay. So if you go interview somebody who has a relative that was killed by a police officer from the Minneapolis Police Department, do you really think they're going to give you a fair and honest opinion of what happened? I mean, they're obviously emotionally involved in the situation. So they're saying that they got their information from 2,000 community members, okay, people of the community, local organizers, you know, they're not organizing softball teams. I don't know what's going on there and family members. So I already think it's kind of tainted. And then the mayor, I love these kind of investigations because everybody throws everybody else under the bus. The mayor is not, this isn't going to be his issue. He's going to throw everybody else under the bus. So he just basically taps out at the beginning and says, we need help changing and reforming this department. We still have a long way to go. So he's basically saying, yeah, I'm the mayor and everything, but don't expect me to make change. You guys need to step in and you need to help us make these changes like this isn't something that they can't figure out. And then they make this bombshell statement because they've got to tie racism into this. Not the fact of crime. It's like, let's not, in fact, if you read this whole report, they don't even really talk about crime that much. This is about race. This whole report is about race. And what's interesting is one point that I noticed is they give you the layout of what the percentage of, of each race is. And they reference Hispanics and Asians. And that's it. They pretty much don't mention them again through the whole report. So this isn't about Asians. Don't care. Not much about Hispanics. Don't care. This is about Blacks in Minneapolis. That's what this report is about. That's what they're focused on. And then they start making these statements as fact. So then they can, they can make all their claims. So they make the statement here, not everyone in Minneapolis shares in its prosperity. What town couldn't you say that? What town could you say that some people, not everyone in this town, shares in its prosperity? Okay, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? I guess I probably shouldn't be saying that, but how is that relevant? There's always going to be people that are working hard, make a lot of money, or inherit it. And there's going to be others that don't have a lot of money. And there's going to be some that don't have a lot of money and work hard. And they're law-abiding citizens. They're, you know, this infamous blue class society, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whatever, that are working hard. They're completely law-abiding law citizens and never have an issue with law enforcement their entire lives. But yet, because it's, it's a prosperity issue, 
That's what creates it. It's a prosperity issue. And they go into all this when you, if you were to read the report, which I would tell you not to, I mean, you'll fall, if you need to fall asleep and you're having insomnia and you can't fall asleep, read this report, you'll be out on page three. It doesn't really say anything other than the fact that Minneapolis Police Department is racist. I mean, that's basically what it says. Um, some of the things that that I thought were interesting is they gave examples. And whenever you see examples in a, in a report like this, you know, let's tell us a few examples. Understand that's going to be the worst scenario they can they can give you. Like I used to be a hiring manager before for technical people. And I used to always joke that whenever you're in the interviewing process, that's the best you're ever going to see of that person. So you have to assume in an interview that however they interact, however they act or whatever they say, that's the best you're ever going to get out of them because it, it's it's an interview. So when you read a report like this, you have to assume the examples they're going to give are going to be the worst examples. They give an example of how two cops in a traffic stop walk up to the vehicle and the guy was acting a little hanky to begin with. That's a technical term. And when they got up by the vehicle, the guy in the vehicle, they told him to turn off the engine. Standard request, turn off the car. We, we want things to be safe. He doesn't turn off the car. He starts revving the engine. And when he revs the engine, he acts like he's, you know, he's like, he's going to take off. Well, I would tell you in law enforcement training, if someone's driving a car at you, you have authorization to use deadly force. A two-ton vehicle coming right at you is a deadly weapon. In the report, they say, why didn't he just get out of the way? And sometimes I would agree with that. But I actually worked on a reconstruction of a cop shooting where a vehicle came at a cop and I was actually running the camera. And so they drove the car at me to simulate or reproduce what it would have been like for this officer. And I have to tell you when that car came at me, because the guy maybe he was doing it on purpose, he came at me pretty quick. And then I was trying to get out of the way with the camera. And it's like, you know what, this isn't as easy said and done, you know, to get out of a vehicle. But they said that that was an intentional act because he just wanted to shoot the guy. So he didn't get out of the way, thus get authorizing him to shoot this person. And he should have just got out of the way. Well, that's easy for you to say on Monday because you weren't there. So they talk about this. And then they talk about using physical force. This is a section I really loved about net, neck restraints. And, and I don't believe in neck restraints, and, uh, restraints unless your life is on the line. So. They said, you know what? A lot of times when they use physical force to include neck restraints, they didn't tell them ahead of time. They just did it without warning. They just, you know, grabbed them or they, well, you know what? If you're going to use physical force, you don't really say, excuse me, sir, based on your actions, I'm about to punch you. That's not how it works. When the game's on, the game's on. When you're fighting, you're fighting. You don't sit there and say, if you do not quit, I am going to use a neck restraint. That's just not how that works. When the fight's on, the fight's on. So it's clearly written by people that don't understand what it's like to be on you know, the streets. Now, they do reference some things that I do kind of agree with, one of which being about stepping in when excessive force is being used. I have to tell you, seeing the, the George Floyd, who, let me be clear on George Floyd, he was a criminal. This was a bad guy. I mean, this is not someone who should be celebrated. We should not be putting statues of George Floyd up. This is not someone we should be telling our kids to pattern their lives after. 
he was in a situation and bad things happened and, you know, and it was dealt with. So I was concerned when I saw this because I've never seen, you know, someone put a, their knee into somebody's neck, but according to them, that was training. So there, there's issues with the whole thing. I, I think that other officers should step in and say, hey, you, you know, you need to back off a little bit here. Take, take a deep breath. Just here recently up in, um, in Loveland, I saw a video where a cop, you know, is, is in a hospital. He knows she's about to spit at him. I mean, she knows he knows it's coming. She's she's acting like she's going to spit at him. And and both of them say, don't do it, don't do it. And instead of just backing away, you know, she spits at him and then he just punches her in the face. Well, the problem is she's handcuffed. You, you really can't be punching people that are handcuffed. Um, so it, it's just, you know, there are some concerns, but but the bottom line is with this DOJ report. You could say this about almost any town, any city in, in the nation. And, and I, I got to tell you this, though, this, this is there was some humorous things in here. Having been a cop for 17 years to, to, to listen to this or read this was funny. This is on page 32 of the report talking about traffic stops in Minneapolis. And th- this they're stating this is like this is an issue with traffic stops in Minneapolis. Stops can result in use of force. No kidding lasting physical and psychological effects and legal consequences. Well, no kidding. A traffic stop should have legal consequences. You should be getting a traffic ticket. And then they state down below, 71.7% of traffic stops did not show any records of a citation or arrest of any kind. That's a bad thing? You know, if I lived in Minneapolis and they told me that 71% of traffic stops didn't get a ticket, I'd want to I'd want to be in Min- well, I don't want to be in Minneapolis, but usually in law enforcement, if a cop is only handing out a ticket, you, you know, 28% of the time, his sergeant's going to have a conversation with him say, you know, you need to be handing out more speeding tickets or I mean, what's the reason for the traffic stop, you, you know, unless you're handing out speeding tickets or whatever, but the community with the community ever but I'm saying, you know what? You're not handing out tickets enough. You're not giving out tickets enough. So that statement just makes no cons- issue to me or, or doesn't make any sense to me at all. So the whole report basically goes back to the same thing, the same issue that's always come out. You're pulling over too many blacks. You're making too many contacts with blacks. You know, there's too much use of force with blacks. They're assuming that the officer has discretion on that that kind of matter. That's the problem. I was on patrol. I've I've done numerous traffic stops. I don't pull over people. I pull over cars. Nine times out of 10, because I work night shift, because that's when all that's the fun time, is when you pull a car over, you have no idea who's in that car. Again, that's the problem. Is you're walking up to a vehicle and you have no idea who's in that car. So if you're assuming that there's some kind of racial discrimination going on, you're assuming that that officer knows who's in that car. He does not know who's in that car. And I'll never forget years ago, I was in a two-man unit and the primary told me, goes, hey, go up there and tell him we got to take off and that his front license plate is loose because that's the only reason we pulled him over. He just wanted to tell him his front license plate was loose. So I go up there and as soon as I make contact, he goes, you pulled me over because I was black, didn't you? 
And I said, well, sir, to be honest with you, I didn't pull you over. I'm the secondary officer. The primary who chose to pull you over, if you want, you can go mention it to him because he's black. We had no idea you were black. And the only reason we pulled you over is to let you know that your front license plate is loose. We need to take off because there's something going on that we need to go to. So in those scenarios, you, you have no clue. Um, so they cherry pick events. They write up this big report. Is anybody surprised that they found issues with the Minneapolis Police Department? Does anybody have any doubt that there's all the, okay, there's all these openings in the Minneapolis PD. They make a statement in this report. I think they said there was 9% black officers and there's 18% um, blacks in Minneapolis. So to be fair, there should be 18% black cops on the force. There should be more. There should be 20, 25%, 30%. Who cares? Who's tracking? Nobody cares. I guarantee you the cops don't care. I never looked in a room and said, how many white cops or black cops do we have on duty? They're all my brothers when we were going out working in the street. But why isn't Minneapolis hiring more black people to be cops? Why isn't that? Why don't they just go out and say, I can solve this. Let's have 30% of our cops be black. Is it maybe that blacks aren't applying to become cops in Minneapolis? I don't know. Maybe that's what they need to be looking into is why individuals don't want to work for the Minneapolis Police Department. So that's kind of that. Um, also, one last thing. They criticized the fact that after George Floyd, there's a little box where you put gender and race in tickets and stuff and in reports. A lot of the officers were leaving that blank. And then they said, well, that means they're racist because they're leaving the race box blank. And they, it went way down or less people were doing filling that in after George Floyd. No, they just didn't want to get called out and get in trouble. So they were just leaving it out, you know, because they didn't want to have any issues. I, I mean, I, I get that. You know, in the state of Colorado, you're supposed to track every time, you know, you pull someone over. If you don't give them a ticket, you're supposed to give them a business card so they know who pulled them over. Guess what? When I worked out on patrol, I was handing out business cards left and right because I didn't like handing out tickets. That was me. I was one of those nice cops that said, hey, just slow it down a little bit. Because all I cared about for the most part when I was a street cop, I didn't want people driving DUI. That was my big thing. So I made a lot of traffic stops to make sure at night, because I worked the night shift, I just want to make sure they weren't DUI. That was it. And I can't tell you in all the hundreds of traffic stops I did. Okay, I did have one where a guy pulled an assault rifle and tried to kill me. Okay, I had one. And I think that was his fault. He pulled the assault rifle on me. But I can't think of a stop where I got in a fight, where someone, you know, resisted on a, on a traffic stop. I'm sure it happened. But in my reflection of my entire career, I cannot think of whenever that happened. Um, and that's the point that I want to make. There are millions upon millions upon millions of traffic stops every year in America. And everybody goes home fine. If you don't resist, everything's fine. You might get a speeding ticket, might cost you a couple hundred bucks. Maybe you shouldn't have been speeding. But if you resist, things are not going to go well doesn't matter what race you are. It's not going to go well. So that's enough of my stuff, about, about the stuff that I wanted to talk about. I know that John St. Augustine has joined in. So we're going to talk about the Black Forest Fire. This is something I saw someone, when I mentioned it in passing a few weeks ago, they said, hey, I'd like to know more about the Black Forest Fire. 
and John and I um, both worked. If you can bring in John at some point, that, that'd be cool. Um, so I can tell you kind of my story about the Black Forest Fire. I was a detective at the time. There he is. There's John. Good to see you, buddy. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's going fantastic. I was telling him earlier, like so many times, you know, when we get called to hearings, a lot of times they get canceled and stuff. So thank goodness it got postponed so you can yeah. be here. But so I want to lead this off from the standpoint of the Black Forest Fire. I was just a detective. John, at the time, I think you were the inspector, but you pretty much oversaw the entire Black Forest investigation at the time. Um, obviously, if I'm willing to say things that doesn't bother me to say, it doesn't mean that John is going to feel free to say things that he doesn't, you know, doesn't feel comfortable saying. So you might get more information out of me or John or whatever, but I'll never forget it because I was driving home. I want to say on a Tuesday and I saw that big plume of smoke and I was like, that just can't be good. The next day on Wednesday, I was called in to work the Black Forest Fire. And I always tell the funny story about um, getting called by the sergeant saying, yeah, Mark, we need you up here. We're looking for bodies because really from our concern or our standpoint at the beginning was we had two issues. And John, I mean, you're the supervisor, so you could fill in that blank is we're looking for victims of the fire. And we're trying to determine how the fire started. So it's kind of the two things that we're running with right up, up front. At first, I was just looking for bodies, which we only found two, a couple, I think a, the next day, like Thursday or something, we found a couple bodies. Well, not really bodies, unfortunately. And then talking about the origins of the fire. But when they called me up in there, I drove right through and I had fire on both sides of my car. I remember looking left and looking right and saying, I got a fire on both sides of me. I wonder if this is safe. But everything worked out. So from your standpoint, as the head of the investigations, um, why don't you go through kind of how all this played out on Tuesday? Because I really didn't get called in until the next day. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you, Mark, I mean, I remember, I think we were, it was actually a day at the range for the investigations division. And, um, you know, probably around 2, 2.30, we, we were all getting ready to leave. And we noticed off to the northeast, there was, um, a, you know, a large amount of smoke that was coming from there. And, you know, initially, you know, when it comes to fires, right, we're police officers, so we don't really think a whole lot about the fire. Um, however, in this particular case, it was odd because it was just on the hills of Waldo Canyon, right? So if you remember just a year prior to that, so January, excuse me, June 11th, of 13th was the the day of the of the black forest fire when it started and roughly a year prior there was a fire that started up the pass in in Ute pass on the waldo canyon area um and in that fire you know there were i don't know mark probably 500 homes 500 plus homes or maybe a little less than that um that were taken in that so you know when we're looking off to the northeast and we see this large amount of smoke Obviously, we're concerned, but from a from a law enforcement perspective, we really weren't, um, you know, we weren't really, we weren't really concerned about the fire in that, okay, we're going to go investigate this because typically, right, the, the fire department has arson investigators and, you know, um, forestry has, you know, people that look into fires that are started in, in, in the forest. And so there was really not a big concern in that, in that initial hours. However, as it started to get into the evening, I remember, you know, at that point, the sheriff was uh, Sheriff Makita, if you remember, you know, he was starting to get a little concerned 
had a team of people go up there and we realized that the fire had um, had began in the county and was starting to. So when you look at fires, the fires either advance um, or they flank or they start to back. And the concern there was that, you know, where was this fire going? And if more importantly, do you know, was there anybody in harm's way? And as you said, right, so as we're starting to to head that way, I mean, the fire was was something crazy. I mean, it was, you know, as you're driving down these these county roads, you know, I recall fire being on, you know, both both sides of the road. And the number one objective for us was to figure out, you know, get first to warn people that the fire was, you know, out of control. Um, and really, it was a preservation of life. And so we tried to, you know, let as many people as we could possibly know that the fire was, you know, was unpredictable. And what we've learned in these fires is that fires tend to take a, a weather pattern of itself. You know, if your wind's blowing west or it's blowing north or south or east or whatever direction it's blowing, it doesn't necessarily mean that the fire is actually going to blow in that direction. And so what they soon realized was that this fire was out of control. And part of the reason why the fire was out of control was that the relative humidity was at at, at the right marker. You know, you had a lot of fuels in the Black Forest area that were ripe for, you know, for for something bad to happen. A lot of dry, you know, um, a lot of dry nature. And then what happened was that combined with the wind created this just monster of a of a fire and so you know i remember you know we started to figure out okay where are we going to have a command post can we start you know letting you know people uh, know that this fire is you know um, out of control and you know what surprised me mark was that there were a lot of people that just didn't want to leave um (laughs) you know it was really odd to me like their material things were the most important thing to them and you know, I re- I recall one guy in particular that he said, nope, I'm sleeping in my truck, in the bed of my truck. I, I laid down a mattress. I'm going to lay in my truck. And you know what? I'm going to protect this structure. And I said, sir, there is no protecting this structure if this fire comes to this location. This fire is is a monster of a fire, you know, and there's no way to protect your structure. What I would encourage you to do is, you know, get your hose out, wet everything down, and then leave, and then hope that, you know, the fire does not um, advance. And so, um, you know, that was, that was, I remember that, I believe, like you said, Mark, that was Tuesday. Wednesday morning, uh, now it's starting to get crazy. Um, I remember being out all night, and Wednesday, the, the main goal was, oh, crap, there's a lot of people that are unaccounted for. And so if you remember, right, we um, we called into the entire investigations division and, you know, we started to assign, you know, areas of the Black Forest, you know, the Black Forest area to certain detectives. And the idea was that, you know, we all team up and we go out and we try and see if, you know, we can account for all these people that had been missing. Um, I remember, you know, there was one family that didn't know where their elderly parents, you know, were, were, were at, um, you know, and, and come to find out they were out. Thank goodness. They were, they were on a cruise. Um, but there was a lot of people that just hadn't talked to their loved ones in some time and um, they hadn't heard from them during this fire. And so, you know, we were out checking, you know, locations. And unfortunately some of these fires, if you remember Mark, I mean, 
we things were burnt down to the to the foundation uh, to to a fireplace. Um, I remember vividly seeing fire coming from within a tree, not outside of a tree. Like you, you think, okay, a fire tree catches on fire, the outside is going to burn. I've never seen something burn from the inside out. Right, and that was going on. You know, and so, you know, I just remember us going to all these locations. And in some instances, the, it was just too hot. Um, we had firefighters that would come and join us and then go, you know, the, the, the it's just way too hot, guys. It's 300 plus degrees. There's no way you're going to be able to stand on this and try and locate, you know, um, remains or try and, you know, find out what's going on. So I remember us just kind of going from location to location. And I think you were actually with us, Mark. It was a street. If I remember, it was something like gun barrel or something like that. And I remember like we could see the fire happening and a bunch of us detectives went and and we started to grab whatever water we could get and and start and shovels. Right. And started to shovel the dirt. Yep. Yep. We were trying to figure out as much. The fire was was jumping and it was like these little spot fires. Yep. See, people still don't know this to this day because they think firemen put out fires, but we were up in there. All the detectives were up in there and we all had shovels in our vehicles. Yep. I remember numerous times stopping the vehicle, running over next to a house that's fine right. and putting out a fire right next to their, you know, spending 10, 15, 30 minutes, knocking that little fire out and then getting back in my car and getting out of there and just hoping that the fire didn't come back. Right. And that's exactly what, you know, we were doing that, that Wednesday. And I remember, you know, most of the people that we were looking for, we could not account for um, because at that time, you know, we just, um, we couldn't. Well, I remember doing a list. I I remember the command post, someone at the command post actually had every house Mm -hmm. and they were marking whether the people in that house were accounted for or not. And then they were telling us houses later on, they were like saying, Okay, this house we have no idea. Can you go over there and check that house out? Right. And they're trying to build this, and I I also remember kind of getting back to the I don't want to say the humorous part. A deputy got in trouble because they were taking pictures of structures on fire and posting it on Facebook yeah. that night, and then people were like, "Wait a minute, that's my house." Yeah. That that deputy just posted on their Facebook, burning to the ground. And so there, were, I remember there was this little thing going out there and saying, guys, be smarter than this. Do right. not be posting pictures of stuff from Black Fort. Because I'll tell you, the cops are taking pictures. Oh, and, yeah. You know, it's, it's happening. Yeah. But it's like, dude, don't post this out on social media because people don't know yet the outcomes of their house. Because you had houses right next to each other, some gone, some not. And they were going to announce it, you know, later on, right. but they didn't want people finding out on flipping Facebook that their house burned down. Yeah, no, it was, you know, the problem, and you're right, there was a list of houses, you know, what it was, was parcels of land. And there was assumptions that there was only one structure where it got kind of right. confusing, right, is when you had three trailers on there and somebody allowed a friend or, you know, uh, you know, a girlfriend or whoever to stay on the property. But then we didn't realize that there were multiple structures. And so, you know, when everything's burnt down, we don't know if, hey, was there a trailer in the back? Was somebody staying in a in a fifth wheel? Right. So we had all these other things that were going on. And the bottom line is we had a lot of people that weren't accounted for. So that's, you know, what a lot of us in investigations, uh, that's what we were doing on that Wednesday, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday and then Thursday 
um, there was one uh, couple, um, and, and I'll never forget this, it was the Herklotzes. Um, and I, I believe there were both government contractors here in Colorado Springs, right? right. And, and were notified that the fire was in the Black Forest area. And, you know, the 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 two, the, the couple went up to their residence and uh, were attempting to, you know, remove a bunch of their um, their valuables and the fire overtook them. And, you know, that was um, that was something else. I mean, you know, so, you know, they didn't need to be there. So the only two people that died in the fire in the Black Forest fire were actually outside the fire area when it started. Correct. They found out about the fire. They drove into the fire area, drove to their house. My understanding is that multiple individuals came by and said, you need to go. You know, and they was, did not. Yeah, there was people that were, you know, obviously um, also evacuating from the area. But I remember there was um, actually a call, I believe, that the family, uh, the, the family had received or had made, and they could hear the crackling. They, they said it sounded like a, I think that the the term they used was like a a, a tornado of some sort or like a row a, a train coming their way. And, you know, a bunch of their, their friends had encouraged them to leave and they were like, we're leaving momentarily. And, um, you know, they didn't make it, they didn't make it out. Yeah. So let's, and, you know, that was, that was the first fire. I will tell you, Mark, in my, you know, most what 17, 18 year, 17 year career that, you know, we ever had to really deal with a fire. I mean, we never really had to deal with any homicides where, you know, somebody set fire. We've been to a lot of fires and, and people that have, you know, were smoking in bed and, and, you know, fire overtook their, their, right. their, you know, their residence, but we never had anything like this where, you know, at the time we had no idea what caused the fire. So now, right now that we have two victims now, you know, now we're looking at a possible homicide. And so, you know, how did, like you said, how did the fire start? So, you know, I remember we brought in resources and we had already had the playbook, um, Kind of established from Waldo, so we brought in forestry experts um, to come in and assist us. And now it's the idea of can we determine an, you know an area what they call is a not a point of origin, an area of origin. And the idea is that you know isolated down to where that fire could have possibly started, and then more importantly, what started that fire? Right? Was it caused as a result of of some type of an accelerant? Um, was it caused by lightning, by railroad, by whatever? And, um, you know, now, now it was, that was the task over the next, gosh, probably in the next 10 days. Um, we were all, you know, on our hands and knees trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. And we, we finally just, you know, found a location there on, um, uh, gosh, I forgot the the road, and that's not like me to forget a, a street name. But I don't know that you want to mention the road. No, no, yeah. I mean, th- th- I think it was pretty well known where the, the the fire had originated. It was in you know obviously in the Black Forest area, but we end up finding out that um, the area of origin uh, was in this location. That there was numerous slash piles that had been um, around that area of origin. And that the fire could have, you know, potentially been ignited by um, an ember that flew from a residence which was close by. And so what we actually did was we brought in some additional fire experts to look at all the conditions of June 11th and how the fire would have advanced and how far an ember could have flown 
um, with the wind conditions and the relative humidity and all that. And I believe, and Mark, I might be out of place here because it's been 10 years since the fire, but um, over 10 years now, but, um, you know, it was like 450 feet, I believe it was that the fire could have traveled. So what is that? 150 yards. Um, so, you know, football field and a half, an ember can fly. And, you know, um, what we discovered was that there was uh, some place close by that um, were, there was a residence that did not have a spark arrestor on the property. And, uh, and what a spark arrestor does, right, is as those flames are in your chimney, as it begins to go up the, the 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 chimney, the idea is that when it gets to the top, there's something that impacts the the flames to prevent it from leaving the residence and you know causing obviously a fire. Well, that spark arrestor was not at the top of this particular um, residence, and after looking at um, you know all the experts evaluating what was on front of us, um, they said that uh, you know there was a likelihood that that fire originated from from that residence. And so, you know, here we are 10 years later, nobody still has been held accountable um, for the fire. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, we, you, you, you recall, I mean, you sat, you know, let's, you, let's talk more specifics. Maybe I'll talk more specifics than you're okay. willing to talk. Okay. So, because I, I was on the team. So I remember being in the house next door, remember that the residence kind of next to it. Mm -hmm. And I talked to her, and the property where the fire started, there was no structures. It was just like a five or 10 acre area. Someone from Ohio owned it. They didn't live here. It was just a piece of land that that's where it started. So the neighbor actually contacted these people up in Ohio and said, hey, you know, you probably need to do some fire mitigation. We're willing to do it for you for free. As your neighbor, we'll go in for free and we'll do that fire mitigation. And so they said, sure, you know, I guess, you know, if you had property in another state and someone's willing to do that, you'd be like, sure, go for it. So what they did is they actually put a gate between their properties. There was actually a gate there so they could get on this other property with ease. And they went back there and they hired people to help and they cut some trees down. And it, it appeared to me that they were actually more interested in getting firewood than they were actually in doing fire mitigation. So they cut all, they cut these trees down or whatever, dead trees, whatever. And then they remove the good wood that you could put in a fireplace and they leave these six foot high slash piles, multiple slash piles of old dead um, kindling that's sitting there, multiple of these things. So that's almost explosive at that point of the, um, I don't want to call it an accelerant, but um, fuel, it's fuel for a fire. Mm -hmm. So we knew that these slash piles were in this area of origin. So we started walking basically into the wind. Now, of course, it's, you know, it's like the next day or whatever. So in the direction the wind was coming from at the time of this fire, and it pretty much led right to this house. I mean, you could just like say, we're going to walk this way. And we did. And then there's the fireplace. So then when we look at this house and we walk up to it, we realize hey, this house is being remodeled. You know, you can look in the windows and you can see that, you know, this, this house is being remodeled and there's no dumpster. So who would remodel a house without having a dumpster or a bunch of trash piled up somewhere? So at that point, we wrote a search warrant to search that house to see if it could provide us with any more information 
to see if possible, because we could see the fireplace, the flues up on top of the fireplace, but we wanted to take a closer look. So we wrote this search warrant. I wrote it. That's how I know about it. We executed the search warrant. And as the person who wrote the warrant, typically my responsibility, because everybody has different responsibilities. Someone could be taking photographs, you know, their search teams, their security, you know, different things like that. I I pretty much kind of hang out and do the security type part. And then as we're executing the warrant, there was actually two individuals. I, I think it was two. It could have been three. I think it was two that were actually remodeling the house when we executed the warrant. So we made them come out of the house. And I remember walking through the house and I noticed that all the trash and all the wood and everything was bagged up. And I remember asking one of the guys, you know, hey, you know, all everything's bagged up. And they said, yeah, the owner was here earlier and he was bagging up all the wood and he said he was going to come back and get it. Really? That's interesting. So we pop these bags open and we lay all this wood out and they're all the same length. Somebody, there were kitchen cabinets and they were all cut at the same length. And it's like, holy crap, I think they were burning these cabinets in the fireplace. So you look at the fireplace, and it's one of those that had brick to the ceiling, old style. And you could see soot going almost up to the ceiling. So obviously, there were some pretty big raging fires. We actually seized the ash from the fireplace and a wood-burning stove on on the first floor. And we found parts to cabinets. The metal parts were inside the ashes. So it was obvious that they were burning these cabinets. We went up on the the roof and we found we recovered the one spark arrestor. There was two flues, only one spark arrestor. Definitely not an effective spark arrestor. So it was obvious that there was raging fires in these fireplaces. They were burning cabinets instead of throwing them out. Then when the owner came on scene, I went up to him and I basically wanted to hand him the search warrant. Here, here's a copy of the search warrant. And I said, hey, my name's Detective Poff. I'm with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. I would love to have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you about some things concerning the fire. He goes, no, I don't think I want to talk to you, man. I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I got to talk to my attorney. Got in his vehicle and basically left the scene. So that's what happened. Not saying anything. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just stating facts from the investigation that I was part of. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, the, the goal in, in, you know, all these situations is you want to have a successful prosecution, you know, and so, um, you know, hopefully, you know, in the future, there's at least an attempt to to revisit this case because, you know, there were, gosh, Mark, I, I think it was the largest structure loss ever in El Paso County and, and Teller County. I mean, you know, we've had some big fires you had the Heyman fire. You've had, uh, you know, Waldo Canyon fire, you've had the Black Forest fire. And, you know, um, I don't think there's ever been a conclusion to the Waldo fire. You know, Colorado Springs police investigated that. There was a couple that was killed in that fire. Um, And here we have the Black Forest fire. However, what I will tell you is um, I don't think there's any disputing that there's at least some good physical evidence in this case that, you know, could assist in a successful prosecution. So. You know, as you said, I mean, obviously you're providing a lot more detail, but um, yeah, there's there's definitely some good evidence that uh, this case has. And now it's just a matter of, you know, convincing the, you know, the local, the new elected sheriff or the newly elected district attorney to maybe take a second look at this and and maybe, you know, um, 
revisit it. Yeah, who do what hasn't been done in the last 10 years. Um, you know, it's no different than some of the other cases that have, uh, you know, kind of haunted this this um, particular county, El Paso County. I mean, it's no different than the Clements case, you know, without going into a lot of detail in that case. I mean, 2013 was a crazy year. You know, um, March 17th, we had the assassination of Tom Clements. And then June, you know, June 11th, we have the the Black Forest Fire um, and of which, you know, by the way, that's we're both 10 years plus now, and nobody has really ever been held accountable for for either incident. So you know, outside so of that, John, I, someone, so, someone just put a comment, which you mm-hmm. can't see that I can. Okay. About statute of limitations. So why with the Black Forest fire would there not be an issue with the statute of limitations? Because two people were killed. Makes uh, it a homicide. Makes it a homicide, and there is no statute of limitation on a homicide. So, you know, um, no different than, you know, some of the cases that you all, you know, your your listeners have probably heard from, you know, um, things like the John A. Ramsey, right? There's a reason why even, you know, that case is, you know, 20, we're up on year number 2027, and there's still no resolution in that case. But, you know, we I don't want to say there easily could be. Right. But there could be. There is yeah. still evidence that is being held by the local district attorney that has never been tested for DNA. And you know, a lot, you know, a lot of these, unfortunately, a lot of these agencies, they don't um, you know, they kind of never really relook into everything, you know, all aspects of the case. They never open up the, you know, the evidence and try to determine, hey, wait, maybe we missed this. And you know what? The same well, thing. DNA, because- there's advancements have been made in forensic science over the years. So you, you need every couple of years, especially on a high profile case like John Benet, Tom Clements, other cases like that. And we'll have to explain some other time the, the major issues with the Tom Clements assassination, because um, we just got a couple minutes left. Okay. But, you know, they need to they need to focus on that. And, and I can definitely say from the inside. You know, when I worked at the sheriff's office with John, there was some emphasis on cold cases, but sometimes I would say not enough on on ones, you know, like the Black Forest Fire. I still think, and this is my opinion, just my opinion, I think with the right investigator in there who's um, motivated to, to do this could still make some good things happen with the Black Forest Fire and at least getting some resolution to the case as to exactly what happened well um, you know yeah and the other thing about this i mean timing is everything mark like if you look at right now right this is an opportune time for new administrations to you know just say hey look it's one of the things that i decided as a newly elected sheriff or a newly elected da is that I was going to go out and, and, you know, dissect these cases and see if there's anything additional that could have been done that maybe has never been reviewed in the last 10 years. And so, you know, what we know is that the last administration didn't do Jack Diddley anything, right? To, to any of the, <laughs> Not any quite of the way cases. I put it. Yeah, to any of those cases. And right. it's a perfect opportunity for the new sheriff or the new DA to go, look, let's let's go back. Let's look at all the evidence. Let's look at the, this case from top to bottom, and let's try and figure out whether or not we can hold somebody accountable for that. And and really, as a Excellent. member of this community, that's all you really want, right? Is 
You want right. some accountability. You want some people to, to to take their jobs seriously and say, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to go look at this because you know why it, it was something that impacted our community in a tremendous way. Not to say that um, things were right, you're, you're talking too long now, John. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll cut it off. <laughs> Great I'll things you... that you're saying. They're giving me the one minute warning. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I'll let you, clo- I'll start... let you close then. But thanks. yeah, no, no worries, man. So John and I, I think, I think we'll be back on a week and a half. Um, I think a week from this Wednesday, I think we're also doing this right after the 4th of July. So the 5th of July, maybe we'll talk about Tom Clements or some other interesting case, but Hey, this week is already bad for me. I'm swamped. I know John, you're swamped. So uh, everybody have a glorious week. And I hope that Chuck and Julie's kid did phenomenal in his little golf tournament. So have a good day. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.